your greatness would wash over every man, woman, and child in the building. Lord, I pray that you would bring peace to our souls. In Jesus' name, I declare peace. I speak peace to your soul in Jesus' name. I speak to your mind, be at peace. Your emotions, your will, be at peace. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for my friends. Calm the storms. Calm the storms. Thank you, Lord. Lord, give us eyes to see you. Let that change everything. Amen? Amen. These guys do a good job of worship today. Thank you, guys. Let's take up an offering. Lord, thank you for being good to us. It's our delight to give back. Lord, use this offering. Let it advance your kingdom. Let it bring glory to your name. Let it be a blessing to your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Um, If you're making out a check, you can make it out to the bridge. Thank you for giving. As those baskets go around and hit a few announcements. Tuesdays we have uh, intercession at Jenny's house at 10 a.m. Every second and fourth Tuesday of the month we'll be doing dream interpretation over at uh, the Spoon Coffee House on Wellwood Avenue. We did it this past Tuesday. It was a blast. It was a great beginning to go there. I want to thank all you guys who showed up. Uh, encourage you. We'll not be there this Tuesday. We'll be there the fourth Tuesday of the month, which is the 27th um, of April. Um, and uh, I spoke with uh, the owner, Joe, and he was so pleased with the turnout from the people who came. He says, you know what? Let's do this whole dream interpretation thing for free. He was. <laughs> Isn't that great? He did want to charge $10 per person. He was concerned about people coming and taking up seats and not spending any money. Well, you guys changed his, uh, his opinion on that, your, uh, your presence, your generosity. That's good. So he wants to do it for free. And that was his idea, and I, I was really happy about that. Um, so the next time will be on the uh, 27th. That's on Tuesdays. On Wednesdays, we have the food pantry here from 6 to 7.30. Um, we have a prayer from 8 to 9 p.m. in the prayer room. Maurice is leading that. Thursday nights, we started a book club based on uh, Jake Colson's book, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. Um, that's from 8 to 9.30 p.m. here at the church. I'll, I'll be leading that group discussion. We did chapters 1 and 2 this week. Um, this past week, we'll do chapters 3 and 4 this coming Tuesday. If you could come to the book club, great. But if you can't, this is a really good book. I mean, this is a really good book. And um, it's available free online. If you go to our church website, under where it says book club, there's a link where you can download the whole book for free. So I just want to encourage you, whether you come to the book club or not, this is a really good book. Really um, thought-provoking, challenging, great story. It's a novel. It's a great story. About this man named Jake who has an encounter with somebody named John And this guy, John, kind of gives the impression that he just might be John the Apostle, who had never died. And so it just really challenges our concepts and understandings of what Christian life in a church community is supposed to be about. So I think you'll enjoy it. I'm enjoying it so far. If you like the shack, it's along the same kind of feeling as that. 
Uh, youth group is usually on Saturdays. They're off this Saturday, as I understand it. Sundays we have prayer in the prayer room from 9 to 10 a.m. Some coming events. Um, May 2nd, there is a spring festival on Wellwood Avenue. Uh, Lindenhurst, uh, town of Lindenhurst puts on. Um, I'm in discussions with the, uh, the owner of the Spoon Cafe, Joe, about letting us set up a, um, a, some spot out by his store where we can offer free dream interpretation and life readings uh, at it. He's really open to the idea. Um, he needs to check out a few things to get back to me. So that's the Sunday. It goes from noon to 6 p.m. We'll probably have a sign-up sheet for that next week if you want to if you want to participate. It should be fun. He said that they already have an acupuncturist who will be out there, so we'll, we could be set up right next to them. <laughs> Sounds like it'll be fun. <laughs> Let's see. Um, what else is coming up? In May, we have the interns from uh, Streams Ministries uh, internship program, their school of ministry up in New Hampshire. They're going to be coming down. There's going to be, I think, 10 people uh, all together. We already have housing uh, all set up for them. Nadine's coordinating the meals for that event. And if you'd like to help with uh, feeding these guys, let Nadine know, and we can, um, you know, we can set that up. Let you know what will go on uh, when they come in the Friday night, May 14th, that they're here. They're going to be here to do dream interpretation and life readings for us. Life reading means prophetic word, right? They're going to minister to us. They'll be here. They've been training in this. They've been studying this. So you want to go get some? You want to be ministered to? They're going to be here Friday night to minister to us from 7.30 on. On Saturday, the 15th, I figure, well, we have all these young, strong, healthy people here. We're going to have a church cleanup day <laughs> from uh, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And there'll probably be a sign-up for that next week as well. So if you can just kind of circle that in your calendar. The church is, you guys have been in here for a long time. I've only been here a year, but the church has been here a long time. And so what I'd like to do is go through the church and just purge. You know, I think we'll get a dumpster, we'll put it outside, and we'll just get rid of everything that needs to go. Closets, food pantry. I think there's a couple of dead refrigerators in there that are more than ready to go see Jesus, right? We can give them a proper Christian burial. So I think we'll do a purge on that uh, Saturday um, morning. Uh, the 15th, we'll have, um, we'll, I don't know, we'll have pizza or something for lunch for everybody afterwards. But I figure we got the interns here. They were willing to do a work day. Let's, let's bless their hearts and let them do a work day for us. And then the 16th, they'll do the whole service. They're going to they're gonna lead worship. They're going to preach. They're going to do ministry time. So it should be a whole ton of fun. Let's see what else we got going on. We uh, changed a bunch of light bulbs last week. Thank you, guys. They look a lot brighter in here, a bit less flickering. There's still more bulbs to be changed. Um, if you'd like to stay after church today and help out, see Peter. I think he's got another 60 light bulbs, and I'm pretty convinced that we could you know, put those in, in different places in the building. So, I miss any announcements? Huh? Doug, Doug Addison is going to be here on May 30th. He'll be our guest speaker for that uh, Sunday morning. Doug's an awesome guy. He's hilariously funny. And um, so you, know, you want to mark your calendar. Uh, for that as well. Doug is a, an old friend of mine. I've known him for years. He, um, he's going to be at a wedding on that Saturday in Brooklyn. And when I talk to him on the phone, I'm like, dude, you're in the neighborhood, you know? And so uh, he's going to come and speak that Sunday morning. So it should be good. I miss anything else? That's, that's enough announcements for one day, right? 
All right, good. Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 15. Kind of springboarding off my sermon two weeks ago, Easter Sunday, I said that Easter was all about relationships. And that kind of inspired me to start a new series of messages, which I began last week, on relationships. And last week we looked at our relationship with God and what a true, healthy, loving relationship with God looks like compared to um, what I call PBC, or performance-based Christianity, and the contrast between the two. And so last week I, I shared with you my personal ethos, things like passion and freedom and spirit and destiny, and how the destiny part of it has kind of led to my own personal struggle with a performance-based Christianity, that sometimes the weight of, of, of a vision, sometimes the weight of a sense of calling and destiny from God on your life, though it's a good thing, it can really weigh on you and put you in a place, it's put me in a place where I'm trying to make it happen. You know what I'm saying? It's all about my performance. So I think... You know, knowing that we have a destiny and having God-sized dreams, this is a good thing. This is really good. Trying to accomplish them with man-sized ability, not such a good thing. And that's usually where the whole performance-based approach to Christianity comes in. Somehow, we start in the spirit and we end in the flesh. And it's the same thing that Paul was challenging the Galatians with in Galatians 3, those first three verses. Somehow, in the process, we start with grace, and we end with works. We, we move away from a relationship-based Christianity toward a performance-based Christianity. And somehow, when that happens, in our hearts, God changes from being our loving father to being our boss. And it's, it's an unhealthy thing. It's destructive. It's been unhealthy for me, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. Um. I believe that a key to overcoming performance-based Christianity, and I mentioned this last week, is if we could begin to think generationally. If we could begin to think generationally. If I think I have to accomplish everything that God's called me to do, I'll work myself to death. However, if all I'm supposed to do is raise up sons and daughters, and that maybe some of them are going to accomplish the things that God's called me to do. Well, what's my biblical basis for it? Well, two things. If you look at Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40, this, these, these great men and women of faith, the Scripture says that promises will be, have been given to them that they never seem fulfilled, but that their hope was in us. God had something better in store. God began something in them, and the promises would be fil- fulfilled in future generations. Another great example is the patriarch Abraham. God gave him a God-sized dream. God gave him a God-sized destiny. He would be the father of nations, right? To describe it, he said, if you could count the stars, it wouldn't be enough. If you could count the grain of sand on the seashore, it wouldn't be enough. Yet all Abraham had to do was raise one son. That's all he had to do. And his son only had to raise one son. So what if God gives us grand calling, great vision, but all we're supposed to do is be relational, be a father to a son, be a mother to a son or a daughter? 
What if that's all it's supposed to be? And then they fulfill another part of the destiny, and their children fulfill another part of the destiny. Could it be that this is some divine generational relay race? And all we have to do is run our leg of the race. Well, I want to do that. I want to run whatever my leg of the race is. I want to run it well. I want to run as to win the prize, Scripture says. But I want to do it with my eyes fixed on Jesus. And I want to do it in such a way that when I pass the baton to the next generation, they can run well. And then to drive it home, I kind of did some comparisons. This is all last week. This is review. The comparison between a family and a team and the differences between a performance-based Christianity and a loving relationship-based Christianity. I told you last week that a family is based on relationship. A team is based upon a task or a goal. A family is eternal, but teams end when the task is completed. You can't be thrown out of a family for poor performance, but you can be kicked off a team if you perform poorly. The leader of the family is a dad or a mom. The leader of the team is a manager or a captain. In a family, you are irreplaceable. No one will ever replace my son or my daughter. They're irreplaceable in my heart, in my life. I could have other sons and daughters, and yet they would never be replaceable. They're irreplaceable. On a team, you can be replaced by somebody with a better skill set. In a healthy family, you're loved. On a team, you're measured and valued by your accomplishments. God's our Father. He is our loving Father. He's not our boss. Jesus is our bridegroom, and we're his bride. He's not our manager. God loves us unconditionally, not based upon our works, not by how well we perform. That was the text that we kind of looked at last week, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then I just did a little bit of contrast to finish up the summary from last week between a performance-based Christianity and loving relationships. Performing, performance-based Christianity takes from you. Relationships are giving. Performance-based Christianity enslaves. Loving relationships brings freedom. A very wise woman said to me recently that freedom is born out of love, while religion is born out of fear. Right? Freedom has to do with loving relationships. Religion has to do with a performance-based Christianity. Performance-based Christianity is all about the rules and regulations. Loving relationships are all about mercy and grace. Performance-based Christianity is a lie, while loving relationships are truth. Performance Christianity, performance-based Christianity leads to death. Where loving relationships are life-giving. So as we continue this series over the weeks ahead, we'll eventually look at relationships with our spouses, relationships with children, relationships with our friends, our friendships. And we'll we'll take a look at relationships with those who are outside the kingdom, those who don't yet know Christ. But today, I want to continue to look at our relationship with God. 
Last week we looked kind of at the negative in, in the performance-based Christianity. Today I want to look at a healthy relationship with God Almighty. So if you're open up to John 15, please read along. Um, uh, please follow along as I read uh, verses 12 to 15. This is Jesus speaking. And he says to his disciples, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. Lord, I pray that you use me today to communicate truth from your word to your people and that it would be life-giving and that it would set them free. I'm struck by the word command in this text. What command is our friendship with Jesus hinged upon? Are we somehow back to a performance-based Christianity? There's a command, and, and then based on how well we obey that command, he'll call us friends. If we fail to obey that command, then he doesn't call us friends. Now, is it, is it back to our performance? Is it back to how well we do or don't do this thing that we call Christianity? Well, let's take a closer look. Because I think it, it's easy to get tripped up here. In John 15, at verse 12, he says, My command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. If you read further on to verse 17, Jesus repeats it. And he says, This is my command. Love each other. So the only command that he's giving, the only thing he wants you to quote-unquote perform in, to be obedient in, is to have loving relationships. So I don't think this is talking about a performance-based Christianity. I think this is driving home the point that it's so important to Jesus that he wants us to love. He wants us to be engaged in loving relationships. Now, understand who he's speaking to. Right? These are Hebrew men. This is a Jewish culture. How much impact, how much weight does the word command have in that culture? Right? There were ten commands given right? by God to Moses. Jesus could have just as well said, hey, number 11, love one another. The use of the word command here isn't so much that there's a rule and regulation for us to follow as what he is commanding. Love. Engage in. Live by. My example. Love one another the way I've loved you. The command is relational. The command is to love. Jesus called these men his friends. Well, what does the word friend mean? Well, in the context here of these verses, it certainly means that it's not a servant. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. To be a friend means that you're not a servant. There's another vote there against a performance-based Christianity. It's not about how well you serve your master. I call you friends. And it includes the sharing of lessons learned. From whom? From the master, from the CEO, from the boss? No. 
from the Heavenly Father. Again, that kind of drives home the point that this is relational. My Father has shown things to me, and I've shared what I've learned from my Father with you. It's, if we're connecting the dots, the dots are relational. The word here used for friend in the Greek is philos. And it means more than just a friend. It does, it's an associate, it's a companion, but it means this. It means the friend of the bridegroom who helps him with the wedding. The friend of the bridegroom who helps with the wedding. Now, I think about my wedding with Nadine. The, the friends, the men who were my ushers at my wedding, these were my best friends. These were my buddies. These are the ones who are closest to me. I wanted them there based on the relationship that we shared. That's what this friend is like. This is the friend you would pick to honor, to have with you, to stand with you at one of the highlight moments of your life. Doesn't that sound like relationship? This is the guy who's walked with you. You've done stuff together, right? You've celebrated together. You've probably got in trouble together. This is your friend. This is a close relationship. What do we know about the nature of these friendships here that Jesus has with these 12 men? Well, just a simple reading of the gospel. I'm not going to give you references, but just a simple reading of the gospel. Gospels will show that Jesus chose them. He chose to have friendship with them. It wasn't like he was a superstar and they came nosing around, hopefully to earn favor with the big shot. Not that we've seen that in any churches, right? He chose them. What else do we know about the nature of these friendships? They ate together. They stayed in one another's home. They traveled together. They ministered publicly together. They discussed it privately afterwards. They disagreed with Jesus. They argued among themselves. (laughs) Who would be the greatest? In other words, they spent time together. They shared life experiences together. They lived life together. They went to celebrations like weddings. They endured hard times together. Like being at Lazarus' gravesite when Jesus wept. Or going to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. They enjoyed good times and bad times together. This is what Jesus modeled for us. This is what he wants with us, his friendship. His life is the, li- is the prime example, the perfect example of what Christianity is supposed to be. And the way he chose to do it was to model for us relationship. He modeled for us friendship. He, God could have done this any way he wanted to, Right? He could have written in the sky so that it would stay there for all time, the ten points on how to be a Christian. And they would glow day and night, and we just look up and say, oh, i got to do number one, number two, number three, number four. He could have done it that way. Every one of us could have been born with a tattoo somewhere on our body. He could have done it that way. I said it on Easter Sunday. 
He could have just wrote 12 books. Instead, he invested his life into 12 men. He did it relationally. And he wants us to do it relationally. He's our example. So we can have friendship with God. That's amazing. We can actually be a friend of God. There are biblical examples of men who seem to find this place. The most clear, James 2.23 tells us that Abraham was called God's friend. Acts 13.22 says that David was a man after God's own heart. John the Apostle was known as the Beloved. There's more, there's much more than a religion of rules and regulations available to us. It's not about the rules and regulations. It's about the relationship. But relationship is hard. Relationship is messy. It's hard to measure relationship. But rules and regulations, we can measure that. We can set a standard for that. We can police that. Right? We can get little gold stars or not get them. It's a little bit harder to measure friendship. So old ways and new ways. I've been a Christian a very long time. I know some of you have too. And early on in my walk, I was encouraged to follow different types of spiritual disciplines. Things like reading through the whole Bible in a year. And I knew if I read three chapters a day, <laughs> by the end of the year I'd get through the whole Bible. And I did that many, many times. Journaling. Part of my early walk, I think I have a decade's worth of journals in a box somewhere in my basement. So it kind of went hand in hand with the scripture reading. So I'd read my three chapters for a day, and then I'd highlight a verse, and I'd write it in my journal with the date, and then I'd write my thoughts on the journal, and I'd write down other concerns and prayers. And, and I was really disciplined at doing that. Memorizing scripture. I remember taking a course and I had to memorize 65 scripture verses, and I did. And I would pop them verses out all the time. Somebody would ask me a question, I'd, I'd sprout a scripture verse. I remember a friend of mine, Jim, looking at me once and said, Tom, I remember a time when you knew a lot less scripture, but you were a whole lot more loving. What happened? That's a good friend. Daily prayer times. Witnessing to people. Took whole courses, taught whole courses on how to witness to people. And had to do it in just such a way that they would want to accept Jesus too. Church attendance. Participating in church programs. Tithing. One of these days I should speak on tithing. You know tithing's not New Testament it's not. Old Testament's 10%. 
New Testament is he gets everything. That's a whole other sermon. New, tithing is actually Old Covenant. Anyway. Fasting. <laughs> there are times when God's used fasting in my life as an amazing tool. Three years ago, our, our whole community, dozens of churches in town, agreed to start the year 2008 with prayer and fasting. And I fasted for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, God began to speak to me in amazing, amazing ways. It was totally him. Then there are other times where I just decide to fast, and I get a big Mac attack by noon, and I don't finish out the day. You know? I think there's a better way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What if those words mean more than just a pathway to salvation? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What if it means relationship? That his truth, his example of living life is the way to relationship with God. What if that's what it means? That his example of living life is the way to relationship with God. So, if there's, here's, here's what I've come to. This really helps me. If there's no life, he's not in it. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if there's no life, he's not in it. Because good becomes enemy of best. Even very good can become the enemy of best. And things like reading scripture, you know, memorizing Bible verses, daily prayer times, journaling, these are all good things. These are very good things. If they foster life and relationship with God. And there have been seasons in my life where it did that, where journaling was extraordinarily life-giving. And then there were other times where it was dead. It was like punching the clock. Oh, nuts. It's 10.30 at night. Didn't have my prayer time today. Got to go fill in my journal. Honey, I'll be back in a little while. Boom, boom, punch the clock. Read my three chapters. There's no life in it. It's just dead works. So is reading the Bible bad? Of course not. Is memorizing scripture a bad thing? No. Is fasting evil? Of course it's not evil. But why do I do the things that I do? Can you see how even good things can be performance and not relational? Now, if it fosters relationship, if having scripture verses committed to memory fosters my intimate relationship with my loving father, well, then let's memorize the whole book. But if it's just so that I can be arrogant and spout off verses, you know, at the drop of a hat, then I need a friend telling me, Tom, <laughs> I remember when you were a whole lot more loving. Good can be enemy of best. So I ask you, what has life on it for you? 
Where do you find life? Go where life is. Because where there's life, you'll find him. Now there are days I can just take my guitar on my lap and play, and there's life on that for me. I just worship him. Intercession. Sometimes I can just throw myself into the depths of intercession and just cry out to God for other people, and I feel really close to his loving, compassionate heart when I do that. Meditation, especially in the last few years, maybe the number one thing, meditating on his goodness, meditating on his word. And it helps me get into his presence. There's life on it for me. But even that can become works. Well, the last five times I read a scripture verse and meditated on it, I could feel the Spirit of God on me. So the next five times, wait a minute. It's relationship. It's not about a magic formula. Sometimes the most life-giving thing I could do in my relationship with God was to go for a walk in the park and just talk to him. I love to find isolated places. A little bit easier in West Virginia and Washington than it is here on Long Island. But I'd love to find these isolated trails. I could talk out loud and not have to worry that somebody's going to look at me like think I was crazy. But I would just talk to him like I would talk to you. God, I feel like a miserable, rotten so-and-so today. Or I don't understand things. We would just go for a walk together. Sometimes that's the most life-giving of activities. Ministry. Ministry is a miserable substitute and counterfeit for real intimacy with God. And I've watched pastors substitute ministry for intimacy with God. And I've watched believers over the year substitute spiritual disciplines for intimacy with God. The goal is intimacy with him. Go where the life is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Follow his example. Go where the life is. That'll be the path that gets you to the Father. If there's no life on it, try something else. Sometimes I'll pick up my guitar and it's like, nope, nothing here today. <laughs> it's dead. Well, let's try something else. You know, I'll try intercession. Oh, bing, there's life. That could, you know when there's life on it. You could feel when there's life on it. And, man, you can really recognize when it's not. Oh, I can't believe i got to do this again. Let me, let me share with you an experience I had in the Spirit that's really helped drive this home for me, okay? I told you there was a, a citywide 40 days of prayer and fasting. Toward the end of those 40 days of prayer and fasting, God spoke to me just subtly, a subtle impression. He spoke to my heart. He said, Tom, I'll give you 40 visions in 40 days. And he did. The 40 days of prayer and fasting ended on February 10th, 2008. February 11th, he started giving me visions. And it went for the next 40 days. On February 21st, 2008, I, I had this experience. I'm, I'm meditating on God's word, and he takes me into the spirit. And in the spirit, I find myself in this, in this room that looks like a hotel lobby. 
And behind me, there's a, like a counter where you would check into a lobby. This whole thing has like a 1940-ish motif to it. I know I've told some of these stories to you guys before. But the whole setting in this vision, it's like 1940-ish. And there's a, the counter where you check into the hotels behind me. And, um, and I hear the person at the counter say to me, would you like a room? And I turn around and I say, yes. He says to me, well, how high would you like to go? I looked at him and said, I want to go all the way to the top. He says to me, it'll cost you everything. I said, yeah, I understand. I still want to go. He looked at me and says, no, you don't understand. It will cost you everything. Hmm. I kind of paused for a second. This will sound a little more serious. But I'm thinking about it, and it's like, you know what? There's no turning back now. God's in it. I want him. I said, can I have my room key? And um, the man behind the counter, he looks at me, kind of nods his head knowingly, and he says, so be it. He says, you can get your room key from the man sitting over there by the fireplace. So across the room, there's a fireplace, there's a nice overstuffed chair, and there's a man kind of dressed in a suit, kind of looking 1940-ish kind of suit, and he's reading the newspaper. So I walk over to him, and um, he just—he just seems like a father figure. He just exudes wisdom. I said to him, "I said, excuse me. I said, um, I need my room key, and I was told that I could get it from you." And he kind of lowers his newspaper and he looks up at me and he says, "I've been waiting for you." He said, "I've been waiting for reassignment for a very long time, and no one has been willing to pay the price." And with that, he folds up his newspaper, and he hands it to me, and he says, this is your key. And then he stands up, and he steps forward, and he enters into me. And I really felt the impact immediately. It was pretty overwhelming. Thirty-two days later, with visions every day, 32 days later, this is what happens. I'm back in this in this same chair, the chair that this, this man in the, in the suit was wearing, when he entered into me, I kind of got woozy, and I sat in that chair. 32 days later, lots of other things happened, but I find myself in that same chair in this other vision. This is, uh, what date is that? This is March 16, 2008. And while I'm sitting there, I see a door that I hadn't recognized before. It was kind of kind of like around the corner, down a hall. And um, so I walk over to this door. It's a wooden door, and it has a, it has a label on the door, and the door says private, authorized personnel only on the door. So I try the handle and, on the door, and I notice it's locked. And then I remember the key I was given 32 days earlier. So I, I kind of reach into my pocket, and I, and I take out this newspaper. I unfold it. And the headline on the newspaper says, Tom Zawacki, friend of God. And the byline says St. John, and the article written on the, from the newspaper is John chapter 15, the whole chapter. So I fold up the newspaper, and I effortlessly slip it into the lock, and the door opens. 
The room is bright. It's so bright. It takes a few minutes for, for my eyes to adjust to the brightness in this room. And when I do, I notice two nice overstuffed leather chairs kind of angled toward one another. There's a small round table between them with two steaming mugs of coffee. And I stand wondering what to do next. Do I just enter this room? And a spirit of wisdom who's with me, and I've referenced him before to you guys, he kind of whispers in my ears, he says, you have the key. Access is granted. Enter in. So I enter in, and the door closes behind me, and I sit down. And Jesus is sitting in the other chair. And he leans in, and he looks at me. His eyes are deep. And so I'm looking into his eyes. I don't know how else to describe this, but it was as if in each of his eyes there was some type of video screen. And just image after image after image are playing on these screens in his eyes. And it was images of everything from the beginning of time until now. And I knew in that moment, just like he described in John 15, that he was making known to me everything he learned from his father. It was vastly beyond my intellect or anything I could possibly comprehend. And it was going straight into my spirit, and it was entering in easily. The images stop at some point, and I I look at Jesus, and honestly, he was beyond description. His beauty combined with his mercy and his love, man, I was just melting. I was just swooning in his presence. And he reaches out his right hand, and he touches me, and he steadies me, and I feel strengthened. And so at one point, I look at him, and I say, this is the top floor, isn't it? And he says, yes, it is. He tells me that friendship with the world is hatred for him and not to love the world. He says, you can love the world or you can love me, but you can't love both. That I'd have to choose. I said, Lord, I choose you. He looks at me and he smiles. He says, it'll cost you everything. And I look back at him and I smile and I said, everything is nothing compared to you. I realized that moment is I can't love God and love the world. But i got to choose. I can't love God and love the worldly ways that are in the church. i got to choose. That loving one will cost me everything of the other. And I know, right now, right then, I knew choosing him is the best thing. There were some days, though. (laughs) Jesus picks up his mug of coffee, he sits back in his chair, and he takes a sip. He says, ah, this is good. He says, here, try some. He extends his cup to me, and I take his cup in my hands. I can feel the power of life on it. So I take his cup to my lips, and I take a sip, and I drink, and I feel the warmth of love flow down throughout my being. I sit back in my my chair, and I just feel completely satisfied. The peace is extraordinary. 
There's no fears, no anxieties, no worry, no care. He's just awesome. And he's teaching me an amazing lesson in that moment. We sat and shared a cup of coffee. And in that moment, his life flowed through me. We just sat and shared a cup of coffee. What if that's where the life is for you? What if you wake up in the morning and you just share a cup of coffee with him? And if you've read my blog or any of the information about me on Facebook, I tell, I write there that I believe that relationships are built one cup of coffee at a time. I've been saying that for years. I never connected the dots to this until just this moment. What if relationship with Jesus is built one cup of coffee at a time? You just sit and share a cup of coffee with him. There's life in that. I've spent too much of my 30-odd years as a believer being satisfied with something less than friendship with God. Or I've pursued it, what I thought was friendship with Him. I've pursued it on the basis of rules and regulations, the religious traditions of men, and works. And it don't work. It hasn't satisfied. Has it satisfied you? Has it worked for you? Or has it left you hungry and wanting? Has even the very good become the enemy of best for you? Wouldn't today be a good day to change? Today would be a really good day to change it. Maybe we can actually find a better way. And maybe it's just one cup of coffee at a time. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give the key to friendship to everyone else in this room. That John 15 would be life to them. That you call them friends. Lord, I pray, help us. God, help us. Oh, God, help us. Everything we do in life has conditioned us toward, toward striving and working and following the rules. Matter of fact, every time we've not followed the rules and regulations, we've usually gotten in a whole lot of trouble for it. And Lord, we've, we've approached you just the same way. 
would you change in us whatever needs to be changed? If it's in our heart, make that change. If it's in the way we think, make that change. But Lord, I pray that you would put in every person here a passionate desire for relationship with you. And I pray that nothing else would satisfy you. I pray that even the very, very good things, if they're substitute, if they're a counterfeit, that they would not satisfy us. And that you would lead us to a place of intimacy with you that absolutely does satisfy us. Do that, Lord. Now, Lord, we can't make it happen. <laughs> We're too weak. We're too conditioned in other ways. Some of us are too broken. And so we just cry out to you, help us. Help us. Lord, some of us, I need more than help. I need you to rescue me. I, I don't need your aid. I don't need you to give me a little bit of help. I need to be rescued. Rescue me, oh God, from performance. Rescue me from even my good works. And rescue me too through friendship with you. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. I just kind of feel the stirring of the spirit right now. Can we just like let's just hang out here for a minute? See if there's something else he wants to do. What do you want to do, Lord? We can give you this time. We can give you this moment. What do you want to do?